This is the Impact Report. I'm your host, Katie Ullman. The Impact Report brings together students and faculty in Bard College's MBA in Sustainability program with leaders in business, sustainability, finance, social entrepreneurship, and more. These conversations go live the first and third Friday of each month. This week, Bard MBA Sean Reckert speaks with Brady Robinson, Executive Director of the Conservation Alliance. My name is Sean Record, and I'm a student um, in Bard's MBA program. And today on the Impact Report, I have the pleasure of speaking with Brady Robinson. Brady has worked in leadership roles within various outdoor-oriented organizations, such as Outward Bound, Access Phone, and Tompkins Conservation. To, to start, um, would you mind giving us a brief history of the Conservation Alliance and its mission? Yeah, sure thing, Sean. And thanks for that nice introduction. I started uh, as the executive director of the Conservation Alliance last November. And um, we are a, a nonprofit organization uh, that uh, harnesses the collective power of business and outdoor communities to fund and advocate for the protection of North America's wild places. So what what does that mean? Um Basically, what it means is that we are a membership organization, so companies, not individuals, but companies uh, join. We have about 263 members right now, and there are two uh, basic uh, kind of channels, if you will, that we use to fulfill our mission. Number one is we uh, award grants. So we give away about uh, $2 million annually to small, highly focused uh, grassroots environmental organizations that are focused on permanently protecting uh, land and water in, in North America. And um, our members pay dues based on their, their their total revenues. And part of our promise to those, those members is that 100% of their dues go straight through um, to the grantees. So 100% pass through. And since I'm speaking to some MBA students right now, I bet some of you are thinking that sounds like a tricky business model, and it is. Uh, so we can talk about that a little bit more later. But um, but we're a highly efficient means for businesses to participate in, in conservation efforts, specifically uh, grassroots conservation efforts. And then the other piece of it, which is I think also very interesting, is that we harness the voice of business for conservation. And um, I'll tell you this, if you show up and let's say we're, we're going to do a, a lobbying trip to Washington, D.C., uh, promoting, you know, some kind of conservation issue, perhaps we're protecting the Arctic or, or whatnot. If you show up with uh, a, a leader, uh, an executive or a CEO of a company from the district of the representative you're meeting, either the senator or the, or the representative, they're going to take the meeting. Uh, even if they don't ag- agree with you. So in this incredibly partisan world in which if you are, if, you know, where the term environmentalist or enviro are derogatory terms to some, they'll see you coming a mile away. Um, but if you show up with a business leader from the district and they come and talk with integrity and from personal experience about what it means for their business for their employees, for their family, for any particular place uh, to be protected or for a particular initiative to be advanced, it it really has a huge impact. And so I think one of our superpowers, if you will, is an ability 
to cut uh, through those partisan divides and speak to liberal Democrats and conservative Republicans and show uh, that the conservation of America's public lands and waters truly is a nonpartisan issue, even though uh, it seems to some that it might be, and frankly, it seems to some that perhaps everything is. And sometimes it's shocking to hear that Republicans and Democrats still agree on some things. So anyway, those are, those are the two uh, grants and uh, advocacy of our members are the two ways that we advance our mission. We've been around for, since about 1989. We started off, we were founded by four companies and we've grown it since then. So that's it in a nutshell. Great. Thanks. Um, can you uh, tell us more about the awarding process for funding projects? Um, like, are there crucial deciding factors and are there representatives that check up on the project? Yeah. So we have, um, we have funding uh, criteria. Um, and there's, there's, you can find it on our website, but basically, uh, it has to protect something in, um, securely. Um, it has to engage any project that, that we would fund has to engage at a grassroots citizen level. So in other words, we're a lot of times in, in big projects, uh, say a wilderness bill or a dam removal or something. There's a lot of different organizations working on same issue. We look for the organization that is the closest to the issue and that is doing the best job of engaging with the the citizens, the people that are surrounding the place and um, are, are actually going to be impacted by it. You're placed with the really big conservation organizations like the Nature Conservancy that has an annual budget of $1 billion. Uh, we need those. We also need these small grassroots organizations, sometimes they're quirky, sometimes they don't even have a website. And so part of our value add to our business members is we understand the landscape and we can identify these, these partners. And we make, you know, in the grand scheme of things, not huge grants, around $50,000, but a $50,000 grant can have an enormous impact on some of these small grassroots organizations. So we think that we give our members a really big return on investment for their philanthropic dollars. So anyway, I, I, I kind of went down a rabbit hole, but I'm really passionate about our, our second criteria that it has to be engaging the grassroots citizen support. Mm -hmm. um, it has to have some sort of recreational benefit. Um, our history is that we are, we're founded by uh, REI North Face Kelty in Patagonia. And so the recreation, uh, outdoor recreation economy, the outdoor industry. Um, there's a really strong history uh, of that within our organization. And so we're looking for projects that have some kind of a recreational benefit. Um, mm -hmm. And then finally, we like projects that have a chance of succeeding in four years. And um, that one is because we're trying to show some return on investment to our membership. There are certainly some campaigns, again, the one that's just on the top of my mind right now is the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and trying to protect that incredible landscape from being um, sullied by oil and gas exploration. We've been funding that for 20 years. It's just the nature of the beast that some conservation initiatives or battles, if you will, just take longer than four years. But on balance, we're looking for things that have a reasonable chance of success in four years. So those are the four things. and then. Um, People, uh, organizations need to be uh, nominated by one of our member companies. And, um, and then they go through a process. Um, the staff vets all the applications. Um, and then we put forward 
uh, a number of those applications that we believe meet the criteria and then our membership votes on them. So that's our existing, um, that's our existing procedure. Great. Um, and as you promote funding for uh, land conservation, do you think it also helps to inform companies about other sustainable practices in their areas of business? You know, I, I would hope so. Mm -hmm. um, I can't, I, I think what, what we've found is, um, I mean, you need to have champions in a business. Sometimes the champion is the CEO and sometimes the champion is somebody who's further down in the org chart. But usually there's some kernel of enthusiasm emanating from somewhere in the organization for them mm -hmm. to be enthusiastic about, for example, funding the Conservation Alliance. And so one thing I, I can definitely tell you for sure is that we, we see a lot of organizations start as, as supporting our grant fund. And then if we can get them to come to one of our fly-ins, now we are still living in the time of COVID-19. And so uh, we're not in the habit of flying people to Washington, D.C. And, and going to a bunch of meetings. But that used to be, and, and, and someday it will once again be a big part of our model. And we found that after, um, you know, granting money for uh, projects and then voting on them, the, com the company employees get a lot more, you know, they have to vote. And suddenly they're like, oh, my God, you know, if I don't vote for the right thing, the right thing might not get funded. There's just a lot of ownership and, and frankly, some anxiety. Uh, but then they feel really bought into the process. Then if if we can get somebody from the company to go to one of our DC fly-ins. So what we do is we we get representatives from the companies, roughly 20 or 30 people, uh, sometimes more. Uh, and we, we put them in a room and we train them up on kind of public land issues 101 and how to lobby. And we get we get important people from the administration and Congress to come in and speak with them. And because we have CEOs and C-suite executives, people want to get in front of these people. And so we put together a great training day. And then the second day they go and they go, they lobby. And so the mm -hmm. first time a person has to actually sit down in front of a staffer or maybe even a congressperson and advocate for something, they're usually really nervous. It's somewhat euphoric. Um, it feels adventurous and scary. And afterwards, they're just like, oh, my God, I did it. And they, they learn that, one, it isn't rocket science. Two, the people they're talking to aren't, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to say anything disparaging, but listen, they're just people, you know, they put, as they say, they put their pants on like everybody else. And suddenly they're like, oh, I just have to show up and do this. And so it, we, we see a real marked increase in, in, in passion and engagement after they've had that experience. And so um, I do believe that there's a lot of entry points within the in the conservation world. But once a company or an individual walks in and starts to feel that they have, have some power in, in, in the way the world works, I do believe that that would probably lead to more engagement on other issues. Um, I, that's, that's my hope. But of course, um, I, I run a nonprofit and a lot of, you know, and, and, and these, these, these uh, CEOs are running for-profit companies. And so I don't always, you know, there's a lot of variability within our membership, but that would certainly be, be my hope. So that was a good question. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I mean, especially when it comes to recreation, it kind of, it forces people to be engaged. Um, you know, mm -hmm. it conveys the um, relevance of being outside and preserving these places. Um, can you tell us uh, about how the pandemic has impacted Conservation Alliance? Um, and if it's impacted um, relationships with uh, member organizations or the fiscal conditions? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously it's impacted all of us. Um, mm -hmm. I'm sitting in my house and just waiting for my eight-year-old to start banging the door. Um, so that's just it's just introduced all kinds of, of personal stress and change, but that's true for all of us. I'm not telling anybody that's something they don't know. Um, it's, it is interesting. There are, you know, we, we get a lot of our support from industry. And so we um, have been in discussion with our members and there are, there are some winners and there are some losers in this, in this, in this environment right now. Um, shelf stable foods are winners. You know, if you're making food that you can put on a shelf and they'll sit there for a while, that sales are through the roof. Um, RV camping and, and camping stuff generally is through the roof. I was just talking to one of our members that makes pack rafts. These are super lightweight, um, inflatable rafts that you can actually carry it on your back, go into some remote place and blow the thing up and start floating down river. It's just, it's an incredible way to travel. They're having the, the best sales year by hundreds of percent. And so, and mm -hmm. then you've also got, you know, brick and mortar retailers um, or some of our beer uh, members. We have some members that that, that produce beer and they, they, it's been really hard if they have uh, in-person dining. So what does all this mean? It means that we have tried to be very responsive and accommodating to our membership. We told everybody straight up, listen, everybody that started the year as a member ends the year a member. Nobody is falling off the list. If you cannot pay your dues this year, that's okay. Um, mm -hmm. so we're just working with folks and trying to, the point is not to extract maximal resources every year out of our membership. The point is to try to build a, uh, a network and a movement and, uh, a, a true, truly bonded, uh, identity within the, the our member companies that we're going to stand up for the protection of public lands. Uh, thankfully my predecessor, John Sterling, uh, was quite cautious financially and we left when he departed the organization we had a five million dollar uh endowment that helps to support operations which gets back to the tricky business model mm -hmm. i referred to at the beginning of the conversation so you know paying for operations happens somewhat through that and also somewhat through other collaborations that we do with our members to generate funds to actually pay for salaries and you know keeping the lights on and whatnot Tagging on uh, to that, um, going forward, do you, what do you see as the greatest opportunities and risks of the conservation realm as a whole? Yeah. Um, I think risks are that it falls out of style or favor. Um, mm. You know, I, I don't think that's going to happen, but, but um, initially people were getting, you know, jumpy about... Um, what the funding environment is going to be. Um, I mean, the, not to be a, not to be a bummer, but um, you know, 2020 has been a pretty harsh year in a lot of ways. Um, mm -hmm. And on top of, you know, concerns about climate change, we've had a lot of fires and, you know, some natural disasters we can attribute to climate change. It is absolutely factually true that there is a, an extinction crisis happening in this uh, in the world right now. And so, you know, one of the things that we're, I don't know if this is an opportunity per se, but one of the things we're trying to do is, is to frame our work within the, a, a more global conservation mission uh, or vision, which is protecting 30% of the lands um, 
of the sort of the world's oceans and uh, and land by 2030. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, Conservation Alliance plays a very small role in that. But um, a lot of leaders in the conservation world have said this is a critical decade. We're about to enter into a critical decade, both for the extinction crisis, for land conservation, certainly for carbon. Um, and I think it's important for us as, as a relatively small nonprofit, but our industry to really think about how our contributions, maybe we've got a member that just gives $1,000 a year or $5,000 a year. Well, that's a lot of money to them. Mm-hmm. And, and how is that helping advance the cause of protecting uh, 30% of the land and water on the planet by 2030? So I think there's an opportunity there. And we're seeing that within some of the foundations in the greater conservation movement here in the United States um, to try to frame our efforts within this, this greater context. But of course, during a global pandemic and economic uncertainty, um, just the nuts and bolts of running a fund making a funding organization, they're just, it's just tricky, but, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, those are just some thoughts for you. Was there a seminal moment in your personal and career development to kind of like, um, get you to where you are today? Occasionally people will ask me like, Hey Brady, I'd like some career advice. And, and, I, I never quite know what to say because I feel like my career has been completely unpremeditated. And usually the sorts of people that ask me for advice are people who like plan. And I'm just like, I, I don't even know how I got here, people. No. Um, so I'd say the the one seminal moment that comes to mind in terms of me as a conservationist is um, some of the, I'm a, I'm a climber. Uh, I, I love, I love rock climbing. I also uh, ice climb and, and, and climbed, you know, big mountains in the great ranges years ago. And um, when I was climbing some of those routes, I knew that it was going to, that the route wouldn't be there anymore. Uh, it was going to melt away. So, some classic ice lines uh, that that were instrumental to the development of, of modern ice climbing techniques in the Sierra Nevada don't form anymore because of climate change. So I think when something, when it, when a conservation issue becomes personal, if a place or a thing that's important to you, uh, you feel the pain of its either loss or potential loss, that's when it becomes personal. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was really important for me. Um, another thing that happened, and this is a little bit off the subject, but many years ago, I got hired as a, uh, a rock climbing instructor at, a, at, a, at a, a small camp for boys in the Poconos of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And um, I was barely qualified and they actually hired me. I, I later found out because I had checked that I was also a model rocketry guy. And uh, anyway, just I have no idea why I got hired there. But um, I, I worked there for two months and I just realized like, whoa, this place could be good. But there is a lot of safety issues here. And the guy running the program isn't so solid. <laughs> and so um I could just tell that one, we were subjecting the campers to, to danger that was completely unnecessary, just as a function of a slipshod nature of the program. And two, it could be that much greater. So towards the end of the season, when the guy running the program was, was kind of out of the way, I requested a meeting with the camp director and um, I, I gave him a list of stuff that I thought was wrong and could be improved about the program. And, you know, I was respectful, but but firm in, in my delivery. And I fully expect, and th- then I just felt better. It was like kind of euphoric or, or like a relief, like, okay, well, at least if someone gets hurt later, at least I said my piece. And and I thought that I'd never get hired back again. And then a few weeks later, he offered me to, the job to run the whole program. 
And um, I ran it for two years after that. And I think the, the lesson there was if you have a vision for something and you share it respectfully, you know, um, people will buy into it. And I think the, the director saw a young person in front of him with a lot of enthusiasm and vision and, and, um, and said, hey, let's give the kid a shot. And so that was my first uh, taste of, of being in any kind of leadership position. And I liked it. And so mm-hmm. it, when, I, when I think about my unpremeditated career, that was a seminal, a seminal moment, I think. Another topic, um, how can conservation and um, your organization better serve BIPOC communities and promote uh, diversity? Yeah, that is an excellent question. And it is something that I believe a lot of organizations are thinking about deeply right now. And I Mm -hmm. think a lot of conservation organizations are thinking about deeply right now. Um, The truth of the matter is, we need uh, new voices, underrepresented voices, not only within the conservation movement, we need their leadership if this is gonna be successful. And um, I, was, I was at a conference, I was at the SHIFT conference in Wyoming a number of years ago and a young Latina woman got up in front and just said point blank, the environmental movement is for rich white people. You say you care about me, but you really don't. You're appropriating my political power for your own for your own ends. And I don't think you're particularly, you know, curious about my experience and the unspoken message was to hell with you. Um, and that was very sobering. That was very, very sobering. And so one of the things we've done, listen, I, I'm not, I, I, we have a long ways to go with conservation Alliance. Let me just be clear. We have a long ways to go. I don't want to come off sounding like I, I know all the answers or I'm necessarily an expert here, but I'll, I'm going to share some thoughts with you and some things that I've picked up along the way. Um, We read a book called uh, Decolonizing Wealth uh, as a staff and as a board, um, which really explores how wealth is concentrated in in a relatively small number of foundations uh, and and, and a relatively small number of people within those foundations make, you know, huge funding decisions and decide where a hell of a lot of the money, philanthropic dollars flow in the United States. And um, as a funder, uh, we literally take money, which is effectively power, and we distribute it. We, 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 we consolidate and we distribute power. And so as a funder, we have a particular responsibility. And so um, in terms of diversity, you know, diversifying the board and staff is important. We have, we, 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 you know, we have zero racial diversity right now in the organization, which is something that I'm committed to working on. Fundamentally, I think what we need to be able to do as a funder is to share ownership and power with uh, underrepresented communities, with with people with indigenous communities, with with uh, with people who haven't traditionally been part of the conservation movement or been part of our sphere. You know, that's the kind of Cliff Notes version of of what I took away from the Decolonizing Wealth book: sharing ownership and sharing power. Which means, uh, on the one hand, you could think, well, it means I need to give some away. I need to give some away. Well, yeah, maybe, but ultimately, it's going to make you more effective as a conservation organization. So, we just today hired um, a, a DEI consultant to come in, um, 
And, uh, you know, we're specifically, not only are we interested in, in advancing the personal journeys of the board and staff and diversifying the, 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 the very board and staff as well, uh, we're also looking for an expert, and this is the person we just hired, is, an, is a funding expert. To, to, we're going to take a rear view, a, a retrospective look at our funding and rank it on criteria. Who benefited? Who got the money? Mm-hmm. Who didn't get the money? Mm-hmm. Um, we've been trying to, to fund more indigenous communities uh, just in the last year and trying to fund um, something that we have somewhat awkwardly called close to home recreation or close to home wild places, basically meaning places that have some kind of a conservation or environmental value, but are also going to be a benefit to people living in population centers, people who haven't traditionally benefited from conservation. You know, for a lot of people, conservation is like these huge unobtainable landscapes that you see in a picture book or on a website. And, and it's really hard to see yourself in those, those landscapes. So I think that's really critical. And so, yes, we're going to take a retrospective look at our grant making and we're going to come up with some criteria for um, how we're going to rank ourselves in the future in our grant making. And I think um, I almost mentioned it before, but I'll mention it now. Uh, a few minutes ago, I outlined the, the grant making process and how mm-hmm. we make a decision. You can come up with all these different hurdles we have inadvertently, or maybe even intentionally in some ways, put up to ensure that some people get the funding and some don't. Um, we have the four criteria. I mean, we have to fulfill our mission. We're not going to say we're going to throw our mission away. But uh, a potential funder, a nonprofit, has to get nominated by a company. So they have to know about us. Then they have to have the confidence to think that a company would actually nominate them. Then they have to get nominated and then they have to pass a vote. And so if our goal is to pull, as you said, more BIPOC people and communities into the conservation movement, I think it's pretty clear that our current grant making process may not be serving us in that, in that uh, goal. So, um, and yet we're not going to throw the model out the door because um, our members contribute dollars and they want to say in where these, these, these dollars go. So this is a moment of, of introspection and I think great opportunity for the conservation world and for us. I'm hopeful that this moment doesn't pass us by with a lot of you know, platitudes being said, but fundamental change not being made. Mm-hmm. I, I am committed to to helping to change this organization to um, to embrace diversity, and ultimately with the goal of pulling more people, more communities into uh, the conservation world for the for the greater benefit of preserving wild places for future generations. I guess the last thing I'll say in this is that um, to protect a place, it really helps to love a place. And to love a place, you have to know a place. And so, you know, connecting more people with wild places is absolutely critical to our mission. Now, getting people in the outdoors is outside the scope of our mission, but um, it was is something you mentioned in your, in your question, and it's, it's critical. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, for young business professionals within this MBA, with a passion for the outdoors, uh, how do you suggest maximizing their impact in the conservation space? Um, what skills are required to be an effective member of the conservation movement um, through outdoor recreation specifically? And yeah. uh, what, quality, what qualities uh, do you look for in future leaders um, of the conservation movement? That's, that's great. So there's a lot in there. Um, 
Mm-hmm. I'm going to build on what I just said. I mean, get right. out and see some of these places. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, armchair conservationists are great. Um, and for me, I, I grew up in Minnesota. I grew up in Minnesota. My dad took me uh, up to the Boundary Waters Canoe Area, which is one of the most spectacular wilderness areas in the country. Anybody who really cares about the outdoors and wants to get the full experience of the outdoors in the United States, put that on your life list. Put that on the bucket list. It's not as spectacular as Yosemite or Yellowstone, but it is incredible. And anyway, I was there as a young man, as a boy, and now there's a um, there's a company called uh, Twin Metals Minnesota that wants to put in a hard rock mine right next to the Boundary Waters. And um, I'm a I'm a committed conservationist, but this is one of those no over my dead body kind of moments mm-hmm. because I know that place, and so we fund uh, a number of groups that are working on that issue, and it is a, it, it I can tap into a very deep vein of passion uh, when it comes to that. So I would just really encourage people to to get to know a place to care, you know, go backpacking or fly, you know. I mean, you know, we don't want to send everybody up to the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, but it'd be it'd helpful if a few people had seen it and could bear witness to it. So that's number one. Number two, um, I think when you when you know a place, especially if it's if you've grown up near there, you, you tend to get an appreciation for the complexity. Um, I personally don't think we need more shrill voices in the environmental movement. Um, there's a place for that. We need all the voices in the choir. Um, I, I really love working with people who appreciate the nuance, who don't vilify business. You know, I just said hard rock mining. Well, guess what? I'm within arm's reach of a smartphone that requires a bunch of precious metals to exist. So obviously if I didn't think any hard rock mine should exist, I'm a complete hypocrite. You know, I think we need more, uh, reasonable voices that say, yes, we need business. Yes, we need extractive industry in various places. And you know what? We don't need it here and here's why. Mm-hmm. I would encourage people to to, to have that, to, to cultivate that kind of an approach. Um, we need professionals. You know, uh, the nonprofit sector sometimes gets a little bit of a bad rap uh, for being a little squishy or a little overly co- collaborative. I personally don't think that's intrinsic in the, in the, in the sector. Um, but we need people with financial skills. We need great project managers. We need attorneys. Um, I was, when I was running a different nonprofit for a while, I, I asked one of my board members, should I go back to school and get an MBA? And he said, Brady, you know, executive education is great, but at this point in your career, if you need an MBA, just hire one. And I was like, okay. So I did. And, uh, we had an MBA doing, um, finances for us and it was incredible. So, you know, we, we need professional people. I'm looking for people who are, not only do they care about the issues, but whatever function they're gonna serve in the organization, whether it's accounting, finance, uh, program, project management, communications, anything, um, they're passionate about the actual job function too, and they have some demonstrated expertise in that. So there is a lot of room in the conservation world. And I think another thing that some people do is they get a lot of experience maybe working for an organization that they don't completely share values with. Some of the greatest advocates I've ever worked with have worked for quote, the opposition. You know, uh, one of the, one of the greatest policy guys I've worked with is a, is a GIS expert and has worked for hard rock mining companies and oil and gas companies. 
And when mm -hmm. that that's the sort of advocate who who truly understands the nuanced nuanced landscape we're working in, can empathize with those with whom we may not always see eye to eye with, and engage with them reasonably, but also frankly knows their Achilles heel that's hidden beneath the their uh, well polished exterior. So anyway, I could I could go on and on, but those are just some some thoughts. Um, Hopefully some of them are useful to your listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Very useful. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Um, your insights have been invaluable. And um, your your inputs and perspectives, um, super helpful. Uh, and uh, touching upon the importance of strengthening the constituency is um, something that's been on my mind lately. And I hope everything. I've sparked a little bit of... Um... Of if, if not passion, curiosity in, in some of your listeners. We need passionate young people, um, people of every age, but in the conservation movement, and I'll just say one more plug, frankly, we need them in the agencies too. Um, I think people have become, and by the agencies, I mean government, people have become um, cynical about public service, about working for the Forest Service, BLM, Park Service, or any number of municipal county or state agencies who are engaged with wildlife rehabilitation land conservation land management um, it is absolutely an honorable career path to spend part of or all of your career in public service and we need good people to fill these seats too so i, I can't help but leave you all with that so thanks again sean for the opportunity Learn more about the Conservation Alliance by visiting them online at conservationalliance.com. Join us for the next episode of the Impact Report on Friday, November 20th. We'll be speaking with Jane Laurie, Global Head of Corporate Affairs at KPMG International. For the complete lineup and other news, visit us at impactreportpodcast.com and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. BARD MBA in Sustainability is one of a select few graduate programs globally that fully integrates sustainability into a core business curriculum. Learn more at bard.edu slash MBA.